It does all sound very uh, undecided, doesn't it? I don't even know if there's going to be a deal, so I have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> well, Catherine, um, talking and learning fluid mechanics uh, and the turbulence of Brexit, it has been an absolute pleasure. So Catherine Drysdale is the doctorate researcher at Onera, the French aerospace lab, and currently lives in Paris in France. However, she originally is from Birmingham and did her undergraduate studies at the University of Birmingham in theoretical physics applied mathematics. With her project being funded directly by the European Union under the SEMID project, which stands for Stability and Sensitivity Methods in Industrial Design, she's extremely wary of the direction that Britain is heading in and the implications it will have for research funding. I'm here with her today to ask more about what she does and how Britain's currently being in the EU facilitates this. Hi, Catherine. Hello. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, the SEMID project? So, as you said, SEMID stands for Stability and Sensitivity Methods in Industrial Design, and it's an international training network, which loosely means it funds training to a number of doctoral students across different universities and institutions. The institutions in my network, to name a few, are the VKI Institute in Belgium, Imperial College in London, ONERA, which is my institution, and the Universidad Politécnica de Madrid. And this is one of several structures that benefits doctoral students in the EU. Another example would be an ECOS project, which brings academic academics together for training schools but doesn't fund PhDs. When we talk about stability and sensitivity, we are really talking about how a system responds to a perturbation or an imperfection. And a very important example is, for instance, what flow patterns will be induced by a minute roughness on an aeroplane wing, like um, an issue in the metal or something like this. So this can give off massive vortices, which can have large consequences in terms of drag, which then causes airline fuel costs to rise, for example. And the problem is quite interesting because we're looking at a roughness of a few millimetres and the wake of the plane, which is the order of kilometres. Therefore, an efficient way to model this is beneficial to the industry as a whole, but to include the different scales is a very interesting problem. It sounds like there's a lot of minute details that need to be made absolutely perfect then. Well, in when you're dealing with a plane or a submarine and things like that, modelling every screw and every cog is quite important. But it's not about perfecting the details per se on the roughness of the aeroplane wing. It would be great if we could have smooth aeroplane wings, but we largely can't. So it's about dealing with these. Okay. And tell us about your research then at the SEMID project. So I'm a little of an oddball in terms of my project as I work on relatively theoretical things. But an example of this is uh, the cylinder flow, which is related to an airfoil. So um, a cylinder flow is when you have a river or something like this. And imagine just putting a glass in it and looking at the wake behind the glass and seeing what it looks like. Um, It would be different if it's honey or tea or whatever, based on whatever this um, river is made of. So if you're thinking about the difference between honey and T is the viscosity, Uh, this viscosity or the ratio to viscosity to other things like elastic forces is contained in the Reynolds number. And as the Reynolds number changes, so as the characteristics of the liquid changes, this is what causes the wake to change. So you can go from vortices which are attached, so they're all kind of connected together, vortices which are unattached, and then you can have even turbulent rapids. And this problem has existed since Greek times and I'm looking at it through an equation called the Ginzburg-Landau equation. Okay I get that. What was it that inspired you then to go down this path? Well I'm a theoretical physicist 
originally, but the modules I really liked at undergraduate were the fluid mechanics modules and the partial differential equation modules. And I did not realise probably at that time how evocative a subject of fluid mechanics was. I mean, theoretical physics sounds impressive, but fluid mechanics can sound a little bit more practical. It was, I think, Heisenberg, uh, from the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, who said that if you were allowed to ask God two questions, then he, it would be, why quantum mechanics and why turbulence? And he was pretty sure that God would have an answer to the first, but not so sure that God would have an answer to the second. And to be honest, I do see fluid mechanics as the more complicated, twisted cousin of quantum mechanics. For instance, I don't know how mathematically inclined your listeners are, but things like the nonlinearity and the lack of symmetry in the operator make things like the non-selfer joint Ginsberg-Landau equation for cylinder flow so much more complicated than the Schrodinger equation in quantum mechanics. So the Schrodinger equation in quantum mechanics, you can see it as lots of springs which are separate, whereas in fluid mechanics, it's like somebody's knotted up all of your springs and then asked you to model it. <laughs> Can you then explain to us for the listeners about how the theoretical work that you described lends itself to modelling the flow behind a plane? Well, this is quite an interesting question because this allows me to talk about the research of some of my colleagues. So the equations for air and water are called the Navier-Stokes equations and they're largely the same for air and water, which surprises people, but then people don't really know the difference between a fluid and a liquid. So a fluid is just something which... Uh, fills up the volume of whatever it's in. So water and air, it's the same thing. And um, just to really uh, show how you get from an equation to a plane, in a plane you have the massive region around the plane, which uh, is called the wake, and we call that the domain. And you need to solve your equations in each part of this uh, region. So you need to solve it very close to the wing, and you need to solve it in the far field. So the same equations cover everything. And the way you do this is you split up this region uh, using a computer or something like this into much smaller regions on the wing and then much larger regions for the large-scale um, phenomena in the wake of the plane. And we call this creating this grid meshing. And optimising this process is a research field in itself. So inside my project, there's a whole research collaboration aimed to look at meshing. And this is between Onera, not me, um, uh, the Universidad Politecnica of Madrid and Spencer Sherwin's group in Imperial College London. And once you've separated the grid out so you know where you're solving your equations and, and what region you're solving your equations in, you then have to solve them. And this is what the people do in my collaboration at VKI and Airbus in Bristol. And there's largely people like me who don't want to solve complicated equations, but they want to do uh, sophisticated mathematics to reduce these complicated equations to simpler equations, which you don't need a lot of computational power to solve. And I have to then compare my simpler equations to the actual ones which are solved. So the Navier-Stokes equation, for instance, has um, a reputation for being horrible because it is. And I say I'm not going to solve this, but I'm going to average it out to solve something simpler. That, that sounds very interesting. The, the meshing sounds a little bit like what um, graphic artists might do in terms of breaking down quite a large image um, on, a, on a small piece of paper and scaling it up 
You've also put some, uh, very kindly put some uh, downloadable information for listeners who are interested in the more mathematical aspects. So they've got um, a, more of a picture on the equations and the ideas that you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Now, you've come here to talk about your research, but more importantly, to talk about something that's close to the hearts of many people in the UK at the moment and for the last kind of three or four years. We were talking before in the creation of this podcast that fluid mechanics has provided you with a lot of insight and metaphors for Brexit. Uh, can you perhaps explain a little bit about that to our listeners? So I was talking about meshing, that you have to refine your grid differently around different phenomena. So uh, very close to the roughness, very close to the wing of the plane, you want a very small mesh, but far away you don't really matter that much. And um, if we have a map of the UK and a map of Europe, we see there is a, a way of refining. So we refine in terms of country and then again in terms of constituency. And the MPs are supposed to solve problems at a constituency level and... Um, Parliament is supposed to do its thing on a more nationwide level and the EU has a, a more global level still. I would argue that where the difference between of the meshing of fluid mechanics and the way we separate the regions out in our country, I say that's quite an important thing. One thing that I would perhaps argue is that the refinement and the problems do not necessarily go together in the same way that they do in fluid mechanics. So one thing that I would say is perhaps the motivations of the Leave and the Remain voters were numerous and perhaps unclear, but it was a geographical result. Therefore, if we were to look at what's problematic in each area, then we would not be solving the same equations in each area. I think that the European Union is also a global approach for things like financial reallocation and therefore may not benefit each constituency and country in the same way. It may not benefit each person in the same way. Because, for example, it is beneficial for somebody to be able to travel and work for a higher minimum wage, but it's not beneficial for workers who already live there to have more competition. So you're saying that the metaphor of meshing breaks down, but that is what's important to realise. Exactly, because it's not even apparent what the initial conditions are. So, for instance, I didn't realise how much a vehicle for research that the European Union was. And there have been competing notions about how Brexit will affect research funding. Some say positively, others say negatively. However, for this research project, for it to be Europe-wide makes tremendous sense when you think of its links to aerospace. Airbus began as a consortium of European aviation firms to compete with American companies such as Boeing. Therefore, I'm somebody for whom staying in the European Union has tremendous benefits because my project is from the European Union. Somebody else may have the experience that European migration has made their job a lot harder in recent times and they will have different feelings on the EU to me, but also in the way that my PhD really made me aware of the work that the EU does. I think that people who voted leave perhaps have become more aware in recent times than when they were casting their vote. So we have a mesh, but with different equations in each part and different initial conditions that are quite difficult to categorise, such as how many of the pros and cons of the EU they are aware of. However, these may not even be the right initial conditions to take. So what would be some of the uh, other initial conditions? Uh, Say perhaps confidence, which is proportional to social class, but also the amount of money somebody has to play with. So, for example, a lot of people from EU countries come to work in restaurants in London and they will share a bedroom with a friend to minimise the rent cost. But for them, it is worth it because they are young and they are learning English. However, in France, you see the same thing of English people going and working at Disneyland or as an au pair and using it as an opportunity to learn French. However, those who do go from the UK to France are probably not from working class backgrounds because to cover the initial costs of moving are not trivial. Also, I guess in the UK, in working class areas, it is not known that this is a phenomenon. 
if I had known that people at 18 years old go to France to become au pairs and learn French, then I would have asked to do this, but I didn't know. However, somebody who hasn't ever shied away from uh, new opportunities, I would, I would have taken this up. I doubt lots of people from working class areas would have taken this up. Also, there's a different thing to this because I speak quite plain English and I'm relatively free of a regional accent. I'm perhaps a little bit Birmingham, but I'm competent enough to teach someone's child a very standard form of English and I doubt that's the case in other areas. So, do you think that people from poorer areas lack confidence in the UK? Uh, in the UK, um, I think they lack confidence in themselves, not necessarily in the UK, but it's it's a strange sort of lacking confidence. It's it's a protectionism lacking confidence because I think um, everybody has heard stories. I mean, my dad was certainly a person who's. Uh, parents dissuaded him through going to university because they didn't necessarily know what that means. That kind of behaviour, which is very anti the philosophy of the EU, is perhaps quite prevalent in working class areas. I guess, yes, it comes down to kind of middle classness as well. Yeah, I guess when people describe Europe as being a little bit of a middle class thing, that is true, but somebody's middle classness is going to be apparent geographically. It, I think that was shown on the maps of where voted leave and remain. But middle classness is, is not a decent metric and it's also not a decent idea. I think that middle classness revolves around how maybe financially free people are and that affects how they interact with the European Union. How has Brexit affected the research um, so far in the UK? Well, I was reading about this because some of my friends who voted Brexit said they had heard mixed things about how the EU would be able to reallocate money, that it spends being a part of the European Union, and that it would be more reallocated towards research. But I haven't heard this sentiment very much from the Cabinet itself, and also that was one of the arguments made regarding the NHS. So I'm not, I don't tend to believe it. Um, there was also an interesting case from a researcher from Keele University called Dr Nick Wright. A long-term collaborator of his asked him to be involved in a grant application that provided travel and accommodation across Europe. And this was supposed to facilitate um, collaboration. However, other institutions who were working on the grant application brought up the fact that having a UK institution would harm their chances of success. I'm affiliated with an e-cost action, and whenever I submit an expense report, it always says in the case of a no-deal Brexit, your funds may not be reimbursed, which is quite worrying when you think of how much travelling to various places costs. I will also quote Dr Wright talking to the BBC. He said, we are going to start getting frozen out of big projects. Researchers in Europe are looking elsewhere to collaborate, and that might mean we are not at the table when big discoveries are made. And also Dr Nick Wright was an astronomer, by the way, and, and this is a, um, a really good point. Astronomy and aeroplanes and things like that, they are nation-wide collaborations, continent-wide collaborations. They're not done by single institutions very often. Uh, so I think there's a notion that academia is somewhat different to other jobs because if somebody is doing something similar to you, then it is an opportunity often for collaboration as opposed to a source of competition. Therefore, the difficulty in collaboration can be something that really hinders research. Has the UK at all made any plans you know of uh, to secure research funding soon? Well, 
Horizon 2020 is the EU's research and innovation programme with nearly 70 billion euros of research funding available between 2014 and 2020. It was a 2020 grant that Dr Nick Wright said he was frozen out of. But in 2016, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, said that this funding granted before leaving the EU will be granted by the Treasury after Britain leaves. Um, there were some other projects, such as the EU Structural and Investment Fund projects signed before the Autumn Statement of 2016 that also had their funding guaranteed in the same way. However, the analysis from the Royal Society showed that the formula Chancellor's measure did not work. Figures from EU databases show that the UK's share of funding fell from 16% of the Horizon 2020 funding in 2015, just before the referendum, to over 11% in 2018. But also, I just um, I think those figures were quite interesting because 16% of the research funding in the UK is quite a lot when there are 27 countries. Um, the figures show that the number of UK applications from Horizon 2020 fell from 19,127 to 11,746 over the same period, which is nearly a 40% reduction. However, it is unclear why applications from UK research groups have dropped off, because success rates remain high for those who apply. And there is some anecdotal evidence that groups, like in Dr Wright's case, have been asked to withdraw from applications by fellow EU collaborators because of the uncertainty that their involvement would cast on those projects. So the EU is still happy, it seems like it's still happy to grant um, money to the UK organisations under the Horizon 2020, but people do not like the uncertainty in general. Because the EU is still granting money, I think there must be a little bit of a lack of trust between researchers and the government because they don't believe that these funds have been underwritten and UK universities believe that they may have to fund the costs themselves and it won't be provided by the Treasury. Um, on a positive note, though, Boris Johnson has instructed his government departments to devise a new fast-track visa system to attract leading scientists to the UK. However, I would say it's only in recent weeks that the threat of a no-deal Brexit has really disappeared, so what the UK wants to do with research funding is still undetermined. It does all sound very uh, undecided, doesn't it? I think so. <laughs> I don't even know if there's going to be a deal, so I have no idea. <laughs> well, Catherine, it has been an absolute pleasure um, talking and learning fluid mechanics uh, and the turbulence of Brexit. Um, I look forward to uh, hopefully many more conversations with you. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. Speak.